sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast now, I am going to play another interview, which I recorded this week, with another uh, talented lawyer, Emma Carmody, on the Murray-Darling Basin. Now, Emma Carmody, PhD, is a special counsel to the Environmental Defenders Offices and uh, legal advisor to the Secretariat of the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands, also a visiting fellow of University of New South Wales Law. Uh, we discussed the, uh, the the basis of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and plan and uh, actions that were, are needed uh, from uh, from all of us in order to, uh, to improve it and to make it work for its uh, intended purposes. Here's that interview. Okay. Okay. Emma, thanks for joining Environmental as Anything. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. No, really. I'm so glad to have you on board to talk to us about uh, the Murray-Darling Basin. It's an issue we've spent a fair bit of time on uh, this year and uh, obviously vitally important for Australia. You've uh, talked about the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Uh, just, you know, obviously you've thought about it a lot. You understand the legalities of it a lot better than I do and a lot better than my listeners do probably. So very briefly, what is the purpose of the Murray-Darling Basin plan? Well, I'll just go back one step okay. and I might explain how it came into being. I might explain its genesis. Yep. So back during the Millennium Drought, which was the drought that spanned the first decade in the 2000s, uh, it became manifestly clear that our water resources, our rivers and aquifers in the Murray-Darling Basin were over-allocated. And a decision was made by the then Howard government to enact federal legislation which would allow uh, the Commonwealth some degree of oversight in relation to the management of those uh, rivers and uh, aquifers and associated floodplains. Historically, water had been managed on a state-by-state basis and it was recognised that that was really uh, not consistent with best available evidence and, of course, water flows across boundaries so it makes more sense to, to manage it as... Um, on a federal as, basis. Exactly, exactly, yep. on a federal basis and in light of the fact that it is a basin that traverses four states and one territory. And a vitally important so, asset for all Australians. <laughs> absolute, absolutely, yes. It's, it's vitally important from an environmental point of view, from um, the point of view of traditional owners and obviously economically and socially. Hmm. So, so in 2007, um, a Water Act was passed by that government. It had uh, unanimous support across both political parties. And, and the key feature really of that act, it's a long and complicated piece of legislation, but essentially the key feature was that um, the federal government, through its agency, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, had to create what we call the Basin Plan. And the purpose of the Basin Plan was to reinstate what we call an environmentally sustainable level of take, which, as the name suggests, is a level of extraction for consumptive purposes that allows the river system to be managed sustainably. So with a view to ensuring that it remains healthy for current and future generations. Well, but that's a feature of the plan. That's a feature of the plan that's it's 
I have only just begun to become aware of. It's not right. something which is foregrounded in most of the communications that I've read about it oh, previously. Is that right? Yeah. So what, I'm really curious. What was your understanding of it? Well, it was it was that it should be managed, uh, you know, on a federal level, but um, um, you know, in collaboration between uh, the, the states and the various regions that were involved with it. But I didn't understand that at its heart, it's about environmental sustainability. Correct. That's that's exactly right. Um, that's exactly right. And interestingly, the the Royal Commission, which was held in South Australia into the the Murray Darling Basin. Uh, it, it found in no uncertain terms that the Water Act is principally an environmental act, and that's not surprising because it derives the, the majority, the majority of its uh, constitutional validity from the multilateral environmental treaties that Australia has signed. So the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands, the Convention on Biological Diversity, and then there's a host of other conventions uh, designed to protect migratory bird species, for example. So, so um, that interpretation was not surprising, but I think it's one that has been contested by different stakeholders across the basin. Right. Well, it has been contested, hasn't it? And which is, you know, like uh, you've 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 done very briefly uh, outlined its purpose, as I originally asked it. So, it's, um, you know, the other question, the next question I have is: Is it fit for purpose, or are those calling for us to can the plan? Are they right? Well, I think so. So, the Water Act, from an environmental perspective, it's it's a it's a strong piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. And just to quell any doubts that some people might have regarding its constitutional validity, it is completely valid from a constitutional perspective. I do sometimes see from time to time assertions that it's sitting on shaky constitutional grounds, but it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the Act itself, I think, from an environmental perspective, is quite strong. It um, fails miserably in relation to providing for the rights, interests and values of our First Nations people. So that's problematic and arguably requires uh, redress sooner rather than later. Now, the Basin Plan itself, uh, well, my personal legal opinion and the legal opinion of many other uh, scholars, experts in this area, is that it doesn't meet the legal requirements of the Water Act. So the Water Act, as I said before, requires the Basin Plan to reinstate an environmentally sustainable level of take. It also requires um, that that level of take to be based on best available science. And so um, there's plenty of evidence which suggests that that isn't the case, that the, that the volume of water we're returning to the environment under the Basin Plan doesn't reflect an environmentally sustainable level of take and isn't consistent with best available science. So in that sense, um, you know, when you're talking purely about the rule of law, it is problematic. Right. Uh, notwithstanding that, I think it is very important to have a legal instrument that manages the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in light of the fact that it is a transboundary river system. I don't think we want to revert to the historic um, management framework, which was that it was, it was managed purely on a state-by-state -state basis. That clearly wasn't working yeah um so yeah. We, we could say of the plan that um, you know fa failing to plan is planning to fail I, oh absolutely particularly in a changing climate you know and you've got that interface between historic and ongoing over allocation so extracting too much water for consumptive purposes and then with climate change and i think that's actually a really important point to make at this juncture so um from a legal perspective 
the, the reduction volume that's factored into the, the basin plan, as in the, the volume that has to be reduced to, sorry, returned to the environment, it, it doesn't factor in climate change modelling. Right. Um, and that's arguably legally problematic. Yes. Uh, so that's the first thing. And the second is that it, we are seeing increasing public discussion about the impact of climate on our water resources, and that's a really important discussion for us all to be having mm. as a society. However, I, I don't want it to overshadow the fact that um, over-allocation is still one of the core reasons why the river system is in poor health and in some instances declining health. It sounds like over-allocation was uh, built into it from well before uh, you know the climate uh, crisis. That's, yes, that's right. So, it's, so the volume that's being reduced, uh, sorry, returned to the environment, it's based on the historic climate record up into up until 2009 so it's basically you know it's becoming increasingly redundant mm. in the sense that it's already based on data that's 11 years yeah. um, out yeah. of date and we've we've since since had um, an even more severe drought than the millennium drought yeah so it was inadequate for the for the for those uh, situations beforehand, and then it's get, only getting worse. And, yeah, and you've that's, that's right. You've said the future is already upon us in this uh, in this uh, document. Yes. Uh, that the Darling Barker is rapidly becoming our very own Aral Sea. Yes, that's a, a disaster. Uh, you know, for for you know, mm. the, obviously the Aral Sea is uh, you know like become a toxic uh, soup, and uh, and the the Darling Barker is is effectively dead along long stretches of its uh, of its course. Right. Yeah, and there's plenty of science to support that. Um, following the, the well-publicised and tragic fish kills which took place last year, there were a number of, uh, of formal inquiries by eminent scientists. So the Australian Academy of Scientists, they undertook an inquiry at the request of uh, the Labor government from them, sorry, the, the opposition, I should say, at the federal level. And um, they stated in no uncertain terms that there are a range of um, underlying problems, including over-allocation and climate change, which were contributing to the very poor state of the Darling River and in turn to the fact that these fish kills uh, took place. And there was another report by Professor Rob Vitesi uh, and colleagues which uh, similarly found that historic mismanagement had contributed to um, those fish kills and that a number of management actions were required to try and reverse some of those alarming trends. Yeah. It's um, so, well, and, and you also you also talk about this idea of um, uh, hydro denialism. Long before we had climate yeah. denialism, we had this hydro denialism. What's, what's that? Yeah. Well, I, it's, a, it's a term that I coined and it's one that some people don't like because I think they think it's unnecessarily catastrophic or apocalyptic. But... I think it's, um, you know, it's appropriate to use language that reflects the seriousness of the environmental issues that we're facing. Absolutely. So really it's, thank you. <laughs> Some people don't agree and have communicated that to me, mm. and I respect that point of view, but my own point of view is that, um, you know, we are in the midst of a climate crisis, and that has a significant impact on our water resources. And as I said before, that interfaces with historic and ongoing over-extraction. And that combined to me, the fact that we're not properly addressing over-allocation and climate change, to me, um, it is a form of denialism. And so I constructed that term, hydro-denialism, to describe that phenomenon. 
Yeah, it's like magical thinking, isn't it? It's just it seems to be that there's you know we, we can allocate as much as we want, we can divvy it off uh, for for the vested interests that we want to uh, to serve. But uh, you know the fact that there actually isn't all this water that we're giving away or selling uh, doesn't seem to doesn't seem to affect the decision making process. Not completely, no. And it's, I mean, it is to be fair. It's very complicated. It's a trans transboundary river system, four yeah. states and one territory. And like all transboundary river systems in the world, it's um, look. It's, it's balancing competing interests, and um, there's a lot of politicking involved. Yeah. There's a lot of politicking involved, so it is inherently complicated. But the end result is that, to a certain extent, it is kicking this problem. Um, it's kicking the can down the road. Down the road, yeah. some someone's going to have to deal with it at some point. Mm-hmm. So there's an approach that reflects the hydrological and ecological reality of particular environment works rather with rather than against nature and climate. You've said, um, you know, what we need is a climate ready legal framework. Yes. Um, what what would that look like? Can you give me yes. a summary of there's a number of specific features that you've, you've yeah. uh, touched on that you've detailed. Could you touch on some of those? Right. So I think I'll, I'll just give a few points. Um, I think it's really important that when you set a limit on how much water can be extracted at the catchment or the basin scale, that not only factors in... Um, our understanding about how the climate has functioned historically, but it factors into the extent possible modelling about what the climate might do mm. moving forward. So that's the first thing. It needs it needs embedded in it um, an understanding of where the climate is going. Yep. So um, that's the first thing. The second would be, uh, and we do have this in the Murray-Darling Basin, you need an allocation system which allows for variation in how much water can be extracted mm-hmm. by license holders um, on a seasonal basis. So we do have that. So if there isn't very much water in the system, uh, a license holder with a lower reliability type of license um, won't be able to extract any water in that particular water year or will only be able to extract, extract 50% of what they would normally take. Mm. So that's, that's an example of how that works, that, that seasonal allocation um, system. So we do, we do have that in, in place in the Murray-Darling Basin, but unfortunately in the absence of an overarching uh, cap on extractions that is taking into account climate change, that in and of itself, that kind of yearly seasonal allocation system, it's really not enough, I don't think, um, to build up the resilience of our river system to cope in a climate, a changing climate. Mm. So they're probably two. They're two of the key features. Uh, the third I'd mention is really um, it's around the flow, what we call the flow regime. So you have high, medium, low flows, for example. Right. Um, and so you you need embedded in your legal instruments that are responsible for managing and sharing water in different catchments rules that that work to protect um, those different aspects of the flow regime. So, for example, in the Darling River, which um, is experiencing increasing periods of no and low flow, you need rules that really stop um, any extraction happening for a period of time to protect 
through the system, protect those low flows. Yep. So that's really important in a changing climate as well. Mm. So that's, I'll just I'll just stop with those three features. I think they're three the, key features. They're the key things. Yes. I mean, what I, what I took from reading it was we need we need to be measuring, we need to be monitoring, we need accountability, we need transparency, and we need enforcement. All, oh well, absolutely. They're the, they're really climate change or not, they're the 101 of good water management. You, you need to know how much water is being extracted. Um, is, it, is it compliant with the legal regime? And you need to know that you have an independent regulator that's actually enforcing the law. Yeah. And that's just, it's just the 101 of good uh, good management. Well, good governance in general, I'd say. They're probably it's right. a, a good good universal uh, sort of set of rules for, for good governance. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, as you've said, we've succeeded in designing a climate-ready legal flame, framework. That was easy. It only took us uh, 15 minutes so far. Um, you know, <laughs> so how do we guarantee that'll be implemented by our governments? And, you know, so that there's, you know, where there is water... Uh, uh, there is money and where there is money there is power and in modern democracy power finds its ultimate expression in the interplay between industry and politics so we're you know as you said this is a complex process yeah. um, so you've said we need to do three things can you could you run me through those can you remind me sorry of yeah that's transparency um, yeah. independent agencies and deliberative yeah. democracy how are we going to get there that's a really good question, isn't it? Well, I think, how do we get there? Um, I think civil society has a really important role to play and the EDO has played a really important role in uh, bringing to light some of the failings of our um, governance framework in New South Wales and at the Commonwealth level. And that's, that's had some positive outcomes. So because of some of the work we've done, um, we have a new regulator, an independent regulator, the right. Natural Resources Access Regulator in New South Wales. Right. And they're, they're doing a really great job. They're doing a cracking job of enforcing the law. Oh. Um, so I think arguably civil society has a really important role to play. Uh, I think the second thing I'd point out is that you can embed in your legal framework certain checks and balances which make it a little bit harder um, to engage in misconduct or not enforce the law or not impl implement the law correctly. Mm. So just to give you a small example, um, the Water Act provides for the creation of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority mm. and for what is essentially its board. Um, now, some legislation require boards of statutory authorities to have... Um, representation from different areas, different stakeholders. And so, so you have kind of embedded in the legislation a kind of maximum and minimum number of people from different types of groups, areas of society, and in that way the board becomes more representative. So that's not embedded in the Water Act, and as a consequence, at a certain point, um, various ministers essentially ensured that um, industry was very well represented on the board of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, <laughs> arguably at the expense of other groups and interests. Yep. So, you know, you can embed, that's just one example, you can embed in legislation a requirement that you have to have a minimum and maximum number of people um, from different backgrounds, different interest groups, rather than keeping it open so that you can completely stack 
the governance body overseeing statutory authorities. Mm. Well, yeah, and so that is that is that what you're talking about when you mentioned deliberative democracy? Is that is that the sort of like the right. inclusion in that process, or is that a, a further extension of that of that idea? It's, I think well, it's an extension of that idea. Yeah, so so deliberative democracy really um, is a process of deep engagement um, between different stakeholders from different backgrounds. Mm. And I think when it works well, it's an opportunity to bring people together from those different backgrounds to discuss um, complex and contested issues and to see if through that if through that process you can reach some shared understanding and agreement um, about how to move forward. I don't think it's a complete panacea. I don't think it's realistic to expect that you're going to get consensus about a range of issues in relation to water management, but I do see it having a role um, in relation to some issues and I do see it helping to build relationships and quell some of the toxicity that mm. has emerged over the years mm. in relation to water management. It's quite a toxic space. And in a sense, mm. that's understandable. People are very invested in their particular, um, in their particular worldview, in their particular um, uh, values or ideas about how water should be managed. And uh, I don't, I don't have any judgment around that. I think it's completely legitimate if you're an irrigator to, of course, want access to water so that you can grow your crop and make a living. That's not unreasonable. And no. you know, at the same time, it's completely reasonable if you are a tr- traditional owner that has been um, overtly and implicitly disenfranchised by the system, you're naturally going to want um, a different set of outcomes. So. Mm. No, that's right. Yeah, it's, compli- uh, it's complicated. It is complicated. It struck me uh, that perhaps you know you mentioned in in your paper the uh, the idea of standing, and it seems to me that mm. that's that's one of those things that uh, you know to have standing to to uh, appeal to the courts. Uh, it seems to be a fundamental mm. right if you if there is going to be a justice system, and mm. it seems that that is uh, seriously lacking in this in this process. Yeah, look, we consistently argue at the Environmental Defender's Office that best practice environmental and NRM, natural resource management legislation, includes um, open third-party standing. And what that means is that if if the government isn't enforcing its own laws, and frankly that is more common than than people might care to um, imagine, if they're not doing it, then there's an opportunity for third parties to do that in their place. And in fact, that... That role has been assumed by the EDO and its clients on a number of, of occasions. Mm. And, and in fact, it's almost impossible for the government to be enforcing its own laws against itself anyway, isn't it? Uh, well, y- y- yes. Um, yeah, yeah that, that is a little bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> we, we do have open standing provisions in, in New South Wales in most environmental statutes. Um, and, and we do use those on behalf of our clients. And mm. there are 
um, standing provisions in the EPBC Act at the federal level. So that's our main piece of biodiversity, national biodiversity legislation. They are, they're not completely open standing provisions, but they do exist. Right. Um, if you can, if, if, if as a prospective litigant, you can satisfy certain criteria. Um, and of course, if you have a case, you can, you can proceed in the federal court. But um, there are no open standing provisions in the, the Water Act. No. Right. Well, look, um, I think we'd probably need to uh, wrap that up as a fairly technical uh, legal <laughs> conversation um, that's going, I'm getting a bit out of my depth in, but it sounds like uh, there are certainly uh, lots of room for improvement. What what can we do? Like, you know, me and the listeners, what can we actually do to help make this, uh, ch- you know, change this for the better to get this in- incredibly important, you know, Water Act and the Murray-Darling Basin uh, Plan and Authority? How can we get, what can we do to help get them functioning properly? Well, I think the first thing is to do what you can to educate yourself um, about the issue so that you understand you understand what's going on at the moment. Um, I think it's it's a relatively small group of people um, and interest groups that are really deeply engaged in this issue. And it is, you know, as you pointed out at the beginning, it is arguably a river basin of it is a river basin of national significance. Mm. So I think the more people who educate themselves about it and realise how important it is from an environmental perspective, the perspective of our First Nations people in the basin, uh, from an economic perspective, it's very important for industry. The more people educate themselves about that, the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, we all vote. So people should consider engaging as well with their local members um, in relation to this issue if they think that that's appropriate. And uh, listen to programs like this, obviously. (laughs) Well, thanks for the plug. Um, <laughs> trouble well, is, everyone who's listening is already listening. So. <laughs> well, but in, I mean, in terms of um, in terms of educating um, oneself, I, I will shamelessly plug, plug the Environmental Defenders Office. We do have a lot of materials about water on our website um, in relation to the Murray Darling Basin, but other other water resources across the country. So that's I think that's a really great place to start. And we have plain English. Um, fact sheets which explain in a way that's accessible to non-lawyers how water laws operate at the state and federal level and I think it's really important for people to try and get their heads around that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely and uh, you know I don't think there's any shame in plugging the website it's uh, www.edo.org.au and yeah it is absolutely chockers with uh, fantastic information I mean the EDO does Great work uh, around Australia you. now. You've become you've you've yes. amalgamated all the state uh, bodies yes. uh, into one group, which is uh, yes. seems to be working well. It seems to be raising yeah. your profile and uh, improving your uh, your capabilities. Oh, look, it's wonderful. Thank you for bringing that up. I'm really glad that you did. Yes, we have incorporated and become one national organisation, and without a doubt, it's strengthened our ability to use the law to protect the environment and uh, help our clients. It's a very exciting time. Well, look, um, Emma, I'm going to have to wrap it up, uh, unfortunately. It is a very exciting time. Perhaps we can talk more as issues emerge. Or or is there anything hot off the the press right now that I've missed that we should talk about, do you think? Just one thing I would mention that's fairly timely Mm -hmm. 
Um, we're at a juncture where the government is making what are called water sharing and water resource plans, and they're really the most important part of this whole water reform process. It's where all of the rules about how water is shared in each catchment in the basin, it's where all of those rules are set in stone for 10 years. Mm. And we at the EDO, together with a number of our clients, um, floodplain, floodplain graziers, traditional owners and irrigators, we're quite concerned that the draft versions of those plans uh, are in some instances inconsistent with legal requirements at the state and federal level. And as a result, the environment and traditional owners and some downstream water users are going to miss out. Now, um, apparently they're going to be made at the New South Wales level by the 1st of July this year and then sent off to the federal level for approval um, under the Basin Plan. So, uh, you know, that's a really crucial thing that we get this right in the first instance because those rules are set in stone for the next... Um, more or less, they can be amended, but but short of going through that process and being amended, they're set in stone for ten years. So if we get it wrong, it can have pretty serious consequences, yeah. um, environmentally and socially. And keeping in mind, uh, climate change is well and truly upon us and affecting water availability. Mm. So we're really what we're really hoping is that. Um, is that some amendments can be made to those draft plans Mm -hmm. to factor in some of those concerns that we've got and to ensure that they're legally compliant. And that will avoid the need for any possible litigation further down the track, which, frankly, you know, we don't want to go there and neither do our clients. No. Nobody wants or needs that. So, what, no. what again, so how can we help? How can the me and, the, and everyone out there listening in, what can we do today about that? Is there, is there a place we can go on the EDO website where we can yeah, make a yeah, submission or something else that we can do to help? That, look, there is, um, there is some information on our website about that. Um, I wrote an article um, about it which was published in our, in our fortnightly bulletin called Insight. The article is called The Role of Connectivity in Maintaining a Healthy River System and that's on the EDO website. You can also contact um, the New South Wales Government, the responsible ministers, so uh, Minister Pavey and Minister Keane, who's the Environment Minister. You can contact them with your concerns and of course contact um, the Federal Government and make it clear that you would like those instruments to be legally compliant. Right. Okay. Well, Emma, thank you so much for all of your time today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the program. I'm, oh. uh, I'm very grateful. No, and, and um, hopefully we'll be able to uh, you know, rope you in again at some point when you've got a moment to spare. If there's news that would be better shared, then we're always here to, uh, to help with that. Absolutely. I'd be very happy to come back. Thank you, Sean. Not a problem. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks. Bye. So good to Water, leave me the water, run down to the
Are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental As Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're hand in hand.